0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, social distancing hypocrisy from the people who tell us they know better than us. And Jim and Belinda Carajalios join to talk about Jim's re-disqualification from the conservative leadership race. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Good to have you tuned in on another Monday edition, surviving another weekend, another week of lockdown. Here we are. And here's an interesting thing. If you're in Toronto, you may have been at Trinity Bellwoods Park on the weekend, which became not the epicenter of the virus, but the epicenter of just completely throwing social distancing out the window. I'm sure you've seen the photos and the videos, but it's sounds for many accounts like thousands of people gathered at this park and most of them looked like they didn't have a care in the world. They were having picnics, they were sunbathing, they were playing games and I wasn't there. I try to avoid leaving home on the best of times so this is not something that I was even tempted to do. I'm not from Toronto, so I didn't even know this was supposedly the place to be on the weekend. But what happened was thousands of people go there. Most people were doing their own thing. They were minding their own business. They were keeping distant. They're outside. And the whole point is that fresh air is not going to kill you. And you had a couple of people there, it sounds like, that were probably not being as conscious as they were or as they should have been. But at the same time, that sort of thing happens all the time. So I look at this and I think, wow, this is kind of unsurprising when you've been locking people down for months and they're starting to get a little bit of a sense of not just cabin fever, but also a sense of, okay, we know that it's safer to be outside now. So I was completely unsurprised by this. Who wouldn't when you start to have Have nice weather, and you start to be told, yes, being outside is fine, say, all right, I'm going to go to the park. And once you get there, you say, oh, wow, there are a lot of people here. Okay, I'll make sure to keep my distance. So I don't get outraged here, but you've got people on Twitter that are like calling for the media or not calling for the media. The media is never the one you want to call in times of trouble. Calling for the military, basically, like just everyone seems to be so amped up about this, thinking that this is like the worst thing in the world to happen. You've got politicians expressing their disappointment. And then you look really, really, really closely at the photos. And who do you see in them? But Toronto Mayor John Tory. Yes, why it's John Tory. Well, everyone else is just there and apparently breaking the rules. John Tory is there with them. Uh, wearing his mask the way you're supposed to wear the mask, like a chin strap, which uh, does absolutely nothing for the virus, but is very fashionable. So there's John Tory there uh, hanging around, talking to people, doing photo ops. And the guy that's been uh, telling everyone else they need to keep themselves locked down is now out there playing in the park. So it certainly makes it difficult to buy into the idea that these people at the park were doing anything wrong when their mayor was walking amongst them, just, you know, shooting the, you know what, Chit chatting and all that sort of stuff. Now, John Tory has issued a statement on the 24th on Sunday saying I want to apologize for my personal behavior yesterday I visited Trinity Bellwoods Park to try to determine why things were the way they were I fully intended to properly physically distance but it was very difficult to do I wore a mask into the park but I failed to use it properly another thing I'm disappointed about these were mistakes that I made and as a leader in this city I know that I must set a better example going forward so I actually love that excuse I visited Trinity Bellwoods Park to try to determine why things were the way they were because you can use that excuse anywhere. You, I mean, you you get caught, you know, having an affair. Well, I, I was trying to uh, figure out why things were the way they were. You get caught at a strip club. You get caught at a bar when you're not supposed to be there. You get caught speeding, and as well, I was sort of trying to figure out why things were were the way they were because the excuse actually means nothing. They're just words, but you need to sell people something. When you issue a, an apology statement, you need to provide a reason, and in the absence of a real reason. You can just plug in a few random words. And he he was there to inspect it. (laughs) He was there to figure out why. So, So all of those photos we see of John Tory talking to people, he was interviewing them. He was really trying to get to the bottom of why things were the way they were. And he doesn't even mean about Trinity Bellwoods Park. He just means about the universe. Like he was asking about cosmology. He was asking about the meaning of life. He was all of these things. Just he needs to know why things are the way they are. And you can't blame a guy for uh, pursuing that uh, infinite quest for knowledge, right? It's John Tory after all. There's no quest for knowledge. In any case, So this is just another example of this hypocrisy that we see from leaders, which comes down to two things. It's not just brazen hypocrisy. It's also a lack of cohesive and consistent and concise messaging. And being outside is one of these uh, great examples of it. Because early on, we were told, stay indoors, keep your windows closed, keep your windows locked, your doors locked, and don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. And then we started to get a bit more of a sense that, okay, there's probably not a reason to stay indoors, indoors. You can stay distant outside. Uh, Don't go outside if you're sick, if you're symptomatic, but if you want to just go for a walk, you can do that. If you want to go to parks, you can. You're never going to catch it uh, outside because basically no one has caught it outside. That was the messaging we started to get. And even other forms of infectiousness. There was one study that came out last week that said, you know, it doesn't actually live on surfaces as long as people think. So it's not like you have to just completely disinfect anything and everything that you touch. I mean, it's good practice to do and to wash your hands and all of that. But it's not like this virus, as we heard earlier on in the pandemic, can just, you know, live on a surface and stay there for, you know, the next three years or whatever and camp out and squat and then eventually, oh, boom, you're infected. So, it's as we learn more we get fewer and fewer reasons to panic and be paranoid about it and you compound that with fatigue that people have from having been in lockdown so much and it doesn't surprise me that everyone decides okay it's a nice day we're going to go outside. It was a gorgeous day in most parts of the country on the weekend. Certainly where I was it was absolutely lovely. So I don't blame people for doing that, but at the same time it's when the political leaders like John Tory who are the ones telling people they've got to stay locked down and his public health advisor was very disappointed in everyone as well. When this is what happens, the political leaders are, are the ones that I think we need to expect more of here. And, and this comes at the same time that there were a couple of stories out of the UK where Dominic Cummings, who is a chief advisor to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, has been breaking lockdown numerous times, despite being one of the chief architects of the British lockdown rules right now. At one point he uh, drove 260 miles across England to stay with his parents. Now he said this was because his wife was symptomatic and he went where he could go. But then there were other reports that he was like traveling into towns 30 minutes away and throughout the month of April uh, very rarely was he at He was just going every which way and, and doing whatever he wanted. This is the type of guy that was part of the government telling everyone else, you can't leave. And the government that in the UK, by the way, insane, police were rationing the number of times you could exercise outside your home. You could only exercise once a day. There was a woman who was harassed on a park bench last week because they said by sitting on a bench, she wasn't using her exercising and she was very shrewd. Uh, she said, well, no, she's doing mental exercises. The laws were not clear on whether it had to be physical or mental exercise. So she's sitting on the bench doing her mental exercise. The cops had no idea what to do. So Britain is the place where worse than anywhere else in the world, the police will go after you for doing absolutely anything or doing absolutely nothing at all. And as Mark Stein said, and I think I quoted it on a previous show, Britain is where everything is policed except crime. So what happens here is in Britain, the the leaders do whatever they want. The leaders don't need to follow the rules that the rest of us plebs do. And this is why there was that story a few weeks back of Neil Ferguson, the the scientist who, again, was one of the, the chief architects of locking people down, had been breaking lockdown rules to have an affair with his ongoing... Uh, lover Antonia Stats, which for a, a, a statistician is a, a really great name for a lover. Not that you should have it, uh, have one. But this is, again, the, the intelligentsia in Britain. Those who are staffing the Politburo, they get to do what they want. They can violate and cavort and gallivant and do all of these other things. But anyone else is risking prosecution if they do it. And this is the whole thing with John Tory. So my view is that what happened at Trinity Bellwoods Park, if people were uncomfortable there, they could have said, you know what, we're going to walk back. We're going to go home. We're, we're not safe here. But it sounds from all accounts like most people were physically distancing. Most people were socially distancing. Most people there, even though if you get a photo from the right angle, it looks like there's a crowd, were actually fairly segmented. And by the way, the photos can be very deceptive. You look at photos of lineups, if you take the photo square on, it looks like people are, are stacked, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder. If you take it from the side, you can see that there's a gap of six feet, six feet, six feet. So don't believe everything you see in photos and videos. But yes, there were thousands of people at the park. So my view on this is that we shouldn't overcorrect, which is what happened on Sunday. So after this all happened on Saturday, uh, police were enforcing, they were out in droves. And then on Sunday, they're going back to prosecuting people for being there as individuals. There was a guy uh, yesterday, it sounds like, that just had four cops descend on him for cracking a beer can open. Now, I don't know if they were going after him for the beer can or going after him uh, for being in the park. But the point is that police were there to prevent anyone from having a good time and having a, a time at the park and all of that stuff on Sunday because it was an overreaction of what happened on Saturday. And you know I don't like the slippery slope argument because people were saying this to me a couple of months ago or even a month ago when I was talking about leaving people be if they were alone in a park alone in a parking lot, and the response was oh well if you if first it's one and then it's a thousand I'm like no that's ridiculous and then of course the Trinity Bellwoods thing happens but again you can enforce these things with a level of a measured response and that's what's not happening right now it it seems to be all or nothing and I don't buy into the fact that that's the way things should be you can ensure that people are, are being safe and you can certainly enforce and educate which is what's happening but that is never going to be bought into by people When you've got John Tory just going there, mask over his chin, just hanging out, doing what he wants, that people are never going to buy into it. And I'm sorry, but the politicians are either so weak willed that they can't follow these rules that are for the good of our health or they don't believe them themselves. And I'm starting to think it's kind of the second category where politicians are feeling like they have a role to play here. But they don't actually buy into it. They don't buy into the hysteria and they don't buy into the panic, which is why uh, the politicians that have been telling us, you know, you're going to kill grandma if you so much as linger in the vegetable aisle at the grocery store for a second too long. Like John Tory, I'm not saying he does that in the vegetable aisle. I'm saying he's the one telling us that. And then, you know, the first available opportunity, nice weather, John Tory's out there just doing what he wants. So I I know I keep talking about John Tory here, but he's an example of the bigger problem, which is that I don't think the politicians are buying into what they're telling everyone else to do. So, why should we expect everyone else to go along with it? Why should we? Why should we expect everyone else in the country, the province, the city, whichever jurisdiction you're talking about, to follow these things when the people that are telling you how important they are aren't actually doing it themselves? And Ezra Levant from The Rebel, who's been a guest on this show and I've been a guest on his show, Ezra goes nuclear on these sorts of things. So he's put out a bounty uh, on Twitter, which I think is hilarious, for anyone who can prove that more politicians and public health officials have been breaking the rules. Uh, because he's convinced that no one's following them now. He's convinced that just absolutely no one is paying attention to these things. And that all came about from the Toronto uh, chief public health officer's response to the, the Trinity Bellwoods Park stuff. So. I mean, like whatever John Tory does or doesn't do, I don't care. And I actually, believe it or not, go through life by ensuring John Tory occupies a a pretty marginal if you know, mostly non-existent place in my mind. So I've I've talked about him more in the last 10 minutes, I think, than I have in the last 10 years. And that's fine. I'm okay moving on from it. But he is an example of the problem here. And he's part of the reason why no one else is going to buy into these things down the road. I think next weekend, if the weather's nice, we're going to see the same thing here. And the appropriate response to that is maybe to reevaluate the quality and caliber of the guidance, not to start cracking skulls and arrest people and shutting down parks again Uh, you know I know we've been seeing numbers that have been starting to increase again a lot of this I think comes down to testing capacity we're still ramping up testing in Ontario for example the government said on the weekend you don't even need to have symptoms if you want to get tested you can just show up at a testing center and on demand say hello I'd like a COVID-19 test please and the government is supposed to oblige so if this happens, yeah, we're testing more and more people, but we need to be focusing on the idea of if you are sick, get tested. If you are sick or you believe you could be or should be, get tested. I don't think there's a benefit in just satisfying curiosity. For example, someone who has been socially distancing, who doesn't know uh, or who doesn't think they're, they have the virus, who doesn't know if there's a situation where they could have just showing up and getting a test for the sake of it, because frankly, you're probably more at risk of catching something at the testing center than you were if you just stayed home. Uh, But we also need to look less at the individual numbers now. And I talked about this a bit last week and more at the broader trends we're seeing of of deaths and hospitalizations. So I don't think adding new cases is necessarily the bombshell that a lot of people, uh, certainly on the media side of things, are trying to make it out to be. So that would be where I'd caution everyone moving forward here. But the fact remains that when the powers that be are so focused on telling you how to live your lives and not on doing it themselves. It, it goes back to those two examples that I gave earlier, those two explanations. They either are so weak willed. Uh, they can't do the most basic of things because they're telling us it's easy. They're telling us, "Oh, it's, it's no biggie. You can do this or they don't believe it. And, and, You know, it could still be either. They could just be really weak, ineffectual people that, you know, can't do what they're telling everyone else to do. But if that's the case, I don't think it makes it any better because they're proving by their own inability to follow these rules that it's not easy. So why on earth are you prosecuting people for doing what you have failed to do yourself? That's my question to these advisors, these politicians, these leaders. And it's not to say that every single one of them has been bad, but certainly enough of them have been. Enough of them have been bad that you can't just take for granted that these people are, are all in the right here. And you uh, take from that the, the problems in the advice itself, the uh, inconsistencies and in the back and forths on masks and the inconsistencies and in the back and forths on border closures and the capitulation to China, the WHO. And, and ultimately what we get at the end of this is an understanding that, hey, maybe, just maybe, these people are not in control these are not steady hands these are not uh, you know stable forces driving this thing but a lot of them are just treading water trying to figure out uh, day by day what's going on in the same way that the rest of us are and that's not to denigrate people that are very uh, educated accomplished and people that are trying to do the right thing here but the idea of taking a prosecutorial force and and injecting it into all of these areas of society that's not based on science, that's based on control, and not even control that's based on evidence, has to stop. And the fact that this is now ramping up even further is indicative of why it's time, now that we know a bit more about the virus, and actually now that I'd say we know a lot more about the virus, and we can see the lack of alignment of these two priorities, we need to put our feet in the ground and say, hold up here. And they're proving the point when John Tory shows up with his chin strap masks at Trinity Bellwoods Park. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Last week, it looked like there was going to be a big shakeup in the Conservative leadership race. The Ontario Superior Court of Justice uh, gave Jim Carajalios a victory against the Conservative Party of Canada, nullifying the Conservative Party's disqualification of Jim Carajalios from the leadership race. So that might have been good news on the surface, but then just one day later, the Conservative Party re-disqualified him. They disqualified him for the second time, and this time in a way that would have been approved by the judge, because it comes down to the various committees that are involved in this leadership race process, and which ones have the have the authority to disqualify candidates, and which ones don't. So the court victory may have been good on the surface, but it wasn't really a moral victory, and it doesn't deal with the fundamental question of whether the party is in the right or in the wrong to disqualify Jim Carahallios fundamentally speaking, not legally speaking, but whether it is just the moral right thing to do and joining me on the line now are jim carahalios and his wife ontario mpp belinda carahalios uh jim belinda thanks very much for coming on today it's great to talk to you both
1: thanks for having us
2: Thanks, Andrew. I'll
0: start with you, Jim. Last week, the judge's decision came down nullifying your disqualification. I had been trying to cover the hearing itself as best as I could remotely. And when I read the decision, I mean, obviously, the the very bottom line of it was positive. But as I read it, I was not convinced it would be all that much of a victory in the long run. It, It seems like the judge was fairly committed to this idea that, yes, you could have been disqualified, but only through different means. So were you expecting that the party would do exactly what it did, which is a day after the decision disqualifying you in the quote-unquote proper way?
2: I had mixed emotions when I got it, because on the one hand, it was an unprecedented decision. It's the first time that uh, uh, someone has been successful in court getting a political party to follow its own rules in, a, in any election, let alone a leadership. And we proved that they couldn't follow their own rules. They had a small committee of four people An appeals committee decided they disqualified me after the leadership organizing committee uh, had a vote and they decided not to disqualify me. Uh, But you're right. The judge didn't want to peel the onion all the way back. There wasn't enough evidence on the record because the party withheld information. And so it's very clear in these rules that the leadership committee drafted for themselves. They can change the rules whenever they want they can uh, relook at things. And the judge said, you know, under these rules, they've got broad power, this leadership committee. And I think he suggested something, you know, they could take a fresh set of eyes to something. Well, the fresh set of eyes was the next day uh, they did double jeopardy on me, which if you're not familiar with the legal system, double jeopardy is when you're tried twice for the same quote unquote crime, which I don't think I committed a crime and they hurried up the next day, less than 24 hours later, to disqualify me. And it, it makes the whole thing look like a farce because on the one hand, you've got a judge saying, give Jim 14 days to get back in the race. And they didn't even uh, wait 24 hours. They didn't um, consider an alternative remedy. They didn't call me for a discussion. They just went and uh, did the disqualification. So I wasn't surprised. That's why my initial communication after we got the court ruling said, I'm, we're going to look into if it's possible for us to get back in the race. And there's a couple of keys there, Andrew. You know, the CRO, Derek Vanstone, had this $100,000 penalty on me. We were really close to getting that money. I think we're at $380,000 in total donations, somewhere in there. And there's about $20,000 of that sitting at a post office the party hasn't picked up in two months. And the difference this time than the last time, when Derek Vanstone issued the $100,000 penalty last time, I only had eight days before the March 25th cutoff. And this time, the judge gave me 14 days. So it was like the judge was saying, Derek didn't give me enough time to raise it. And the party knows I had it from the court documents. They know I was close to the 400,000. And and that's obviously why they decided to not give me the 14 days to raise it uh, and just ask me 24 hours later. So you're right in your initial analysis of the case, we were vindicated that they didn't follow their own rules but they have broad powers under the leadership rules to do whatever they want. They're more powerful than Andrew Scheer and the leadership candidates in this election, and that's a shame.
0: I should just disclose, lest anyone be unsure of this, I'm not a lawyer, you are a lawyer, so you may have a a vastly different take on this than I do. But in reading the decision, one thing that became apparent was that the judge really didn't seem to be interested in wading into political party affairs or wading into anything to do with an election. It seemed like uh, the judge's take on this, the court's take, was that this was just a a garden-variety contractual dispute. The fact that you were a political candidate was irrelevant. The fact that the Conservative Party of Canada is a political party, is irrelevant. And it was just on the technicality. Now, at the same time, there is a, a democratic effect here. This is about democracy. It's about elections. But I don't think that was really reflected in what the court was evaluating.
2: No, and so you're 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 hitting something like the nail right on the head, that if you go to court to challenge a political party, you can't do it on a judicial review. That's been tried, and, and the law has been settled on that. So, for example, in this case... The judge couldn't analyze Derek Vanstone's decisions for issuing a $100,000 penalty, and he couldn't analyze why he hasn't sanctioned Peter McKay because he used the term bathroom bill or stinking albatross. He couldn't analyze Aaron O'Toole saying Sharia law is a threat to Canadian values and Canadian democracy and other comments that other candidates made. The judge couldn't do that in this case. He could only look at the leadership rules as a contract and whether the party followed it. And that's because in our legal system in Canada, there are no rules or laws that govern how political parties work. Political parties make up their own rules. And the only way you can challenge it in court is through a contractual analysis. Are they following their line by line rules? And when there's a broad set of rules that give draconian powers to a committee of 18, it skews in their favor. So on the one hand, it was unprecedented that we got a judge to rule against a party because that's never happened in Canada before and so I think it's a success in the sense that it sends a message to all political parties follow your rules but on the other hand you're limited you can't do a lot in court you can't ask a judge to say look at this absurd hundred thousand dollar penalty when the buy three three hundred thousand they want me to pay four hundred thousand out of donations to get on the ballot and it's kind of other pe- supporters have said that's like extortion my wife has a bill in the Ontario legislature, Bill 150 that you could tell us about, that's trying to put some rules on political parties to prevent voter fraud. And Belinda can tell you more about it because right now you can commit voter fraud in an internal party election and there's nothing you could do about it.
1: Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that there are no rules. It's like the Wild West when it comes to party elections. And, um, you know, I've introduced this bill to say, let's put some rules around this. Let's make it punishable by law that you cannot, you know, uh, tamper with the votes at an, in an internal party election, whether it is um, for it to be a nomination to be a candidate, uh, a party president, or a leader of a party. And, um, you know, I'm really happy that we received unanimous, um, it, it was voted on unanimously in the House for during second reading, and it's now waiting at committee for third uh, to get to third reading. But it's just, it really is incredible that a lot of people didn't realize that, you know, something as important as choosing who will, could potentially represent you at a provincial level with something that uh, you know a small group of people could tamper with and, and essentially rig the results to be uh, so that the candidate of their choice and not the member's choice is the one who's on the ballot for election time.
0: Let me ask you about that, Belinda, because I fear as someone who has been a a candidate myself, I ran in the same election you ran in in 2018 in Ontario, albeit with a, a different outcome. And the issues that people were asking about were pocketbook issues, things like hydro rates, taxes, spending, debt, all of these other things. How much do ordinary people care about these sorts of political fights things that on the surface look like inside baseball that only people in this bubble that the three of us are in really care about and really pay attention to and i guess the reason i'm interested in your perspective on this is because you've run in an election where you have to appeal to the general population that's different than an internal political fight like leadership races policy votes and so on
1: so the card-carrying members they care and then the more news that we've had around the bill Um, and you get people who didn't really understand it, who were then emailing the office or emailing me personally or calling saying, oh my gosh, how are there no rules around this? And it's a little scary because, you know, we claim to live in a democracy and if you're going to interfere with uh, someone's right to a free fair election as uh, a card carrying member of any party, not just the conservative party, You know, and again, that person is going to potentially win in a general election and potentially have a position of power to represent people provincially or federally, if it were to go federal. Um, You should really be trusting those individuals who are who are taking part in this process. Um, You know, the corruption starts small and then you know, how much patience or how much forgiveness are we going to have for it before it becomes a bigger issue and we start interfering with general elections. So we need to take care of our democracy, and, and that starts with things like internal party elections.
0: Is that something you agree with, Jim, that if you don't deal with it on the internal issues at the internal level, it will expand and start to impact or infect the broader, bigger elections?
2: Uh, I've always, uh, you know, my history, Andrew, uh, in the federal party, provincial party, you know, Dan Nolan, the co-chair of the leadership committee, went on CBC a couple of days ago to try to, you know, blame me, and I know what I did wrong, and, and kind of give the illusion that no one knows who I am. And he he said the phrase, "We tried to welcome into the party." I've been in this party for 15 years, uh, federally and provincially, before I even met my wife, yeah. <laughs> and I've advocated for uh, adherence to the rules and and having a grassroots member-driven process on policy on nominations. Stamping out voter fraud uh, at federal conventions. And in each of those instances, the pushback from uh, the cronies at the top trying to control the process is it's inside baseball. No one cares. But what we've seen in the last four or five years, the, the, the stories from the provincial party under Patrick Brown and now with this leadership, is it's starting to present a culture of what conservative politics in Ontario and politics in Canada is about, and remember the Jody Wilson-Raybould saga, it's starting to create a culture and people are starting to wake up to the fact that it is the wild, wild west and people who are spending their money inside of political parties can't be reassured that their right to vote and their right uh, to make a decision is gonna be respected because a small handful of know-it-alls inside the party Uh, think that they should have the right to remove you off the ballot whenever they want. And so it is damaging long term and it's easy to dismiss a one off thing like inside baseball. But when you see a culture of undemocratic behavior, a culture of making decisions that shows that they're enemies of democracy, enemies of the rule of law and they're against, they don't even trust their own voters. That has lasting consequences, and that's why, uh, you know, as a, as a family, we continually stand on that, on that fight on the right side of the issue for members and voters.
1: The other thing is it's trust, right? People are losing trust in local institutions, and then we always complain, oh, only X percent of the population got out to vote at the general election. Well, can you blame them? Like when, when you start to hear about all this, these shenanigans that go on in internal party elections, it's really uh, disenchanting for a lot of people and people just don't want to be a part of it. They feel like, well, what does it matter? Why would I bother to get involved? Why would I donate or volunteer for a political party if at the end of the day, my voice doesn't matter? So, you know, it, it really is part of a bigger problem, I think.
0: So this court decision could have given the party an out to say, listen, we made a mistake. He's back in the race. All is forgiven. They didn't take that. As you've noted, Jim, they doubled down, but they they could have had an out if they wanted it there. And this does bring me around to this idea that you've talked about previously, thinking the fix was in from the get-go, that they were never going to let you get on the ballot. But my issue with there, my sticking point, is why would they approve you as an applicant in the first place? The fact that they disqualified Richard de Carice, Suggest that yes, they were open to disqualifying. Is it just that they didn't think you were going to get the $300,000 and 3,000 signatures and they figured your campaign would just naturally dissipate? Or is it that they thought that you might do something that would give them an out to disqualify you? In this case, they latched onto that email you sent uh, that Aaron O'Toole complained about. But if the fix was in, why not just
2: disqualify you before you
0: even got to the point where you were uh, on that approved list?
2: Yeah, and everyone knows my campaign style, Andrew. Everyone knows I'm an aggressive campaigner and I try to win. So it's not like they approved me to run not knowing what they were going to get. And it's very clear uh, if you look at the timeline of how this all unfolded, that they were never going to let me on the ballot, Andrew. Uh, They let me run initially, maybe because they didn't want to create this issue at the outset and because I've got a a good solid following in Ontario and across the country. They didn't want to stop the Axe the Carbon Tax guy from being in a conservative leadership race. Because when I started Axe the Carbon Tax, you know, the guys at the top of the conservative party, including Andrew Shear, thanked me. Jason Kenney thanked me. They were all thankful. So maybe they didn't want to exclude me at the outset. But if you look at the timing of the steps on how this all unfolded, that communication I had mailed out to supporters. Two weeks passed. I've sent an email I hit the $150,000 threshold, which would have entitled me to the party list. And all of a sudden, Aaron O'Toole came out with this complaint, and they used that complaint as a means of not providing me with the party list, which was instrumental to get to the $300,000 threshold. So obviously, they thought I wasn't going to reach $300,000 without the party list. I still reached the $300,000. And you know, a couple of days ago, Dan Nolan was on the CBC in this disgraceful show to continue to malign me suggesting that if I just paid the fine, I'd be a candidate. But they only gave me eight days to pay the $100,000 fine, which is egregious. And when the judge said I had 14 days to pay it, and they knew I could reach it, they decided, well, now we're not gonna give him the 14 days. We're gonna disqualify him. So it's clear if you follow the steps that they were never gonna let me on the ballot. They were not interested in looking at a reasonable solution here. Uh, They just didn't want me there. And I was a threat, Andrew. I was in third place when I was removed from the ballot. Third fastest to three hundred thousand to get on the ballot without the party lists. My polling numbers were climbing, and I was becoming a threat to Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a lot of fear because uh, you know without the list, you managed to hit those numbers. and I think that speaks volumes for the type of um, following that you have. And you know, you just get Jim into a debate, right? You're gonna really see how milk toast these contenders are.
0: Thanks. Okay, that's fair, but how do you square that up with what the judge found, which was that there was no procedural unfairness, there was no bad faith, the judge was unequivocal about that. In looking at all of the facts, the judge was fairly confident that you were not treated in bad faith and that you were not uh, denied procedural fairness, it was simply about the Conservative Party, not by a, a contractual technicality following the rules that it set out for the race.
2: So you have to look at what the judge was provided with. He was provided with a broad set of rules. And the only evidence that we could provide was what I just told you. The party didn't put forward their evidence in terms of what was discussed at the leadership committee meeting, what the conversations were, what the notes were, what the emails were. They didn't even provide if there was any communication outside of the leadership committee with others. They refused to provide that evidence to the court. And why would they refuse to provide it? Obviously, they're hiding something. So when the judge makes the statement... There was no bad faith. There was no procedural unfairness. He's doing that on analysis of the steps that were taken in terms of issuing the penalty against me, the steps that were taken originally when they decided not to disqualify me. And he's doing that in the context of what's on record in court and how broad the rules are and the power they have to basically do whatever they want. He's not making that statement, comparing it externally. For example, why was Jim fined? $100,000 of the penalty, and no one else has been uh, penalized or sanctioned. That's outside of the judge's scope. Another example is he's not looking at the CRO Derek Vanstone said I uh, uh, violated. Derek Vanstone made an issue, uh, a violation, allegation, an error, but that's outside the judge's scope. He can't look at that. All he can look at is there's a leadership committee. They have broad powers. The CRO can issue a penalty. And that's what he was looking at. And without the party being honest with what they discussed in the back, uh, you know, uh, it's an evidentiary record. So the judge is not just going to guess.
0: After the disqualification, you said on Twitter, I am yet to be defeated in a free, fair, and democratic vote among members. How real party elections should be decided. You also note uh, that Maxime Bernier in 2017 had uh, made allegations of irregularities in the voting process here. But when you say this, I'm yet to be defeated in a free, fair, and democratic vote among members. Are you just saying whenever you've lost, it's been because it's rigged? Is that not how that comes across?
2: Well, I, I, I don't know when I've lost. Uh... If I were to be in this race, Andrew, and uh, members decided I wasn't the leader, then you can say I lost. But obviously, when they're not letting members have a say, they find me to be a threat. Uh, I've been in conservative and provincial politics federally and provincially, sorry, conservative politics for 15 years. I've run uh, for riding president positions. I've run nominations for other people. I've run to be a a part of the policy committee of the party. Uh, I've won in every free and fair election I've ran in. My wife had two and a half weeks as a nomination contestant on the PC side. She was running against three individuals, two of which were campaigning for a year and a half. She won as well. So our record on winning elections when members get a right to vote uh, is pretty clear. Uh, I'm undefeated. Whether people don't like that or not, that's fine. But if you wanted to defeat me for once, let me get to the ballot here in this leadership and have Peter or Aaron beat me. Obviously, they thought that was too risky and they didn't want me on the ballot.
0: One of the more insidious aspects of party politics, I find, is trying to shrink the parameters of debate, shrink the parameters of what can even be discussed or or voted on. And I mean, in the particularly brazen cases, this is taking people like you and and Richard Dacre off the ballot. And it seemed like the party was trying to have it both ways. On one hand, they were trying to say, oh, you know, these people don't represent the party and no one's going to vote for them and all of that. But at the same time, if no one's going to vote for them, just let that be revealed. Let that be realized by letting members cast ballots. And it's the same as with party policy. I know that uh, the convention for the Ontario PC party in which you ran as a candidate a couple of years ago for president, it was the same sort of thing. The party had tried to keep a lot of these socially conservative motions from getting to the voting floor. And they did get to the voting floor and ended up getting past all of these things. So that is the, the party's response seems to be, listen, we don't want these outcomes. These are unacceptable outcomes to us. So let's try to ensure that they're not on the ballot and, and the members don't have a chance to vote for them. And obviously it's the grass members who then suffer
2: we're seeing this happen at the provincial and federal levels where a small group are deciding what can and can't be talked about and it's not just about social conservative stuff it's about you can't talk about voter fraud you can't talk about the Paris Accord you can't talk about the carbon tax Jim that was the position three years ago until everyone changed their mind and supported me and I don't know how we can have a united conservative movement with a small cabal of Lisa Ray, Dan Nolan, and Derek Banson at the top, telling everyone what they can and cannot talk about and creating a chill for the rest of the leadership that says to the candidates, we can kick you out of a race if you say the wrong thing. And the imposition of control and power in our parties that I've been fighting against for five, six, seven years now uh, internally, and now it's, it's in a leadership contest, It's getting worse because the members are getting stronger. The members want bold action. Lisa Raitt had her chance in 2017 when she ran for leader to mold the the future of our party and the discussion. She got 3%. And she constantly talks about a big tent. But it looks like a 3% tent to me. It's going to be a huge tent and only 3% of conservatives are going to be there because the way they're running the leadership, they're driving people out. Into the PPC, into the Wexit party, there, there's disgruntled conservatives that don't want to vote. So I'm not for the 3% tent, Andrew. I want a big tent and members to feel like they can talk about what they think is important in conservative solutions. But the cabal at the top, they think they know better. And the proof, they don't prove it to us because they're not winning enough to, sh- to show us that their way is the right way.
0: Now, obviously, the Federal Conservative Party and the Ontario PC Party are are legally different entities. And and even more fundamentally, they don't share resources as openly as the Liberals and NDP do in in various provinces, not just Ontario. But they are still controlled by a lot of the same people. There is a lot of crossover there. And it's the same Conservative Inc. operators, if you will, uh, that seem to be at the helm of both. So I have to ask you, Belinda, as an Ontario PC MPP, how do you function and exist in this party? Party when the establishment seems to be so uh, dead set against Jim and against what Jim's been trying to do,
1: so I'm a conservative because I believe in you know fiscal responsibility and other and other issues that conservatives believe in, and you know there are a lot of people in the party who are like minded. Uh, you know there is obviously those in the party who are different than that, uh, and there is a strong silent group who are very supportive of. of free speech and all these conservative values and, and of Jim as well. Um, it's amazing actually how many people, uh, told me that, you know, I'm not going to say anything publicly, but I'm so excited that Jim's on the ballot. We're so excited. I'm going to put him number one. Um, there's so much support and there seems to be this hunger for people to just be bold and take action and to be strong about the issues that we know that we need to be strong on in order to win elections. Um, so, you know, I think that we're really fortunate to have well, people like Jim, but Jim to put his name forward for things like this, because there is a hunger out there for this kind of strength in our party.
2: And it's really hard to be hard on Belinda, Andrew, don't you say? Like, it's one thing to say Jim's a little too abrasive for us. But when you meet my wife, I think uh, it's really hard to be uh, uh, tough on a lovely and supportive (laughs) wife as mine. Um, Look, we're in it together, Andrew, and, and we have a lot of support. And because of retribution, a lot of people stay quiet. But at the same time, you're making
0: allegations of corruption. And if the federal Conservative Party is, in your view, corrupt, and uh, the same people are are really running the Ontario PC party, it stands to reason that both of them would have this corruption issue. So how do you have—or let me back up a second here. Do you have confidence in either of these parties to have a positive path forward? So—
1: yeah. Okay, I'll go. I'll do. I'll be really brief. So I have faith. I don't know if confidence is the right word. For me, it's faith. I have faith that if we continue to fight from within, that we can make positive changes. Um, and that's kind of the lens that I've always looked at things. It, it's better to be within something and try to steer the ship. Um, and now the, you know, conservative parties are, are very large ships, uh, all political parties, and by their nature, hard to steer. But um, I mean, if you're quiet, then you're part of the problem.
2: And look, Andrew, uh, I don't think I'm saying that the entire party federally or provincially are corrupt because what's a party? If you ask the establishment, they think the party is defined as their friends from Bloor Street South off of Yonge Street. That's what they think the party is. I think the party are the members. And so, no, do I think that members across the country in the Federal Conservative Party are corrupt? Members in the Provincial Conservative Party across Ontario are corrupt? No, absolutely not. That's why we continue to fight. What I think is that the rules are so vague and there's no laws to prevent broad rules being applied by a handful of people to get the predetermined desired result, like this is WrestleMania, uh, to to get what they want out of the process. Uh, That's what we're challenging. We're not saying the Conservative Party is corrupt because the Conservative Party is its membership and its voters. It's the small handful of people that continually like to predetermine the outcome uh, and fly in the face of the will of the grassroots members. Uh, That's the problem here, Andrew. That's what's going on. Someone else who initially
0: tried to affect change from within the system and then ended up hitting a wall was Maxime Bernier, now the leader of the People's Party. You had said in an interview a couple of months back with Ezra Levant that you would make uh, Maxime your Quebec lieutenant if you were successful at winning the Conservative leadership. And in response, Maxime had said, Thanks for the offer to become your Quebec lieutenant, but I already have a party. When you found out about the depth of corruption in the CPC establishment, the People's Party will be happy to welcome you with open arms. Here you are a couple of months later and two disqualifications later. Are you going to take him up on that offer?
2: Look, at this time, we're just going to, you know, we have to get the campaign donations from party headquarters that they refused and forced me to go to court to access, to pay off our campaign expenses. we got to wind down the campaign. And what's next for me, I don't know, Andrew. Maybe political retirement. I was in this leadership race because I wanted to quell this fragmentation of the conservative movement. I had supporters saying it's Jim or Wexit for me. I had supporters saying I voted PPC, but I'll come back to the conservative party of Jim's leader and he can unite the fragmented aspects of the movement. That's why I was in this leadership race. And that's why Belinda's an Ontario uh, PCMPP, because when people were saying under Patrick Brown's leadership, we need a new party, we stuck it out. Walid Solomon, who's Aaron O'Toole's chair, was running the PC party with Patrick Brown, they sued me on December of 2017, right before Christmas, and it took a toll on us, and we stuck it out because we want to see a united conservative party. But I don't know what's left to do, because if these guys can meddle with the process in a leadership, how do how do we have faith? How do I tell people to pay money to go to a convention to vote an executive uh, if we don't have guarantees that the vote is going to be fair and it's not going to be rigged? If we don't have guarantees that people can run in a leadership, let alone how they're going to run in a nomination, Andrew, uh, and not get kicked out. So I I have a lot of concerns and it's been a long, hard five years uh, for our family uh, trying to uh, push the movement and uniting it. And the people at the top, like Lisa Raitt, Dan Nolan, Derek Benson, they don't care if the conservative movement is fragmented. They don't care if there's Wexit. They don't care if Max is picking up support. I want to see all those. Uh, disgruntled voices united under the conservative party banner not fragmented
1: yeah i don't think they realize how damaging this is to the conservative movement overall because people are paying attention and people are getting frustrated and if if they can't tr- if, if these guys at the top can't trust their members to to use their vote wisely then people are just going to leave they're going to leave the party they're going to stay home conservatives have very long memories
0: Belinda Carajalios, PC PCMPP for Cambridge in Ontario, and Jim Carajalios, former Conservative leadership candidate. Jim, Belinda, thank you both so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Jim and Belinda Carajalios joining me from their home. We've got to wrap things up for today. We'll be back in just a couple of days, though, with more of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada.